Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for our second episode of the week. Uh, Bruce, the last time we came on on Monday, we had hit all of the games of week one except Clemson Duke. And that one turned out to be pretty eventful. Uh, I got to watch it on the plane back from Orlando. Uh, Obviously, huge win for Duke. Uh, their first top 10 win since 1989. But inevitably, uh, the discussion turns to Clemson. And my goodness, I mean, the descent from national title contender. Did you think coming into this that, okay, you know, Garrett Riley could come in and get them back to 2016, 17, 18 level? Like, what was your expectations for Clemson? Um. I thought they were would yeah I thought they would he would reignite them I don't know if I would thought they had the talent to be what they were in 2016 and and that part but I thought Will Shipley would would take a big step forward I like Cade Klubnick from what I had seen of him in you know early on as a recruit I was impressed by him I don't think the receivers are particularly good and nowhere near what they were before I mean, by the way, this is the first time I can remember that both of us hit our upset specials. You had Wyoming knocking off Texas Tech. I had Duke beating Clemson. Um, well, that should tell us what your expectations were for Clemson. Yeah, they. Are, yes, but the, this was my observation, though, watching the game. In the first quarter, uh, Duke looked pretty pretty good they made some mistakes and you know they they did some things that duke typically hadn't done but they also was you know really really uh impressed by a lot what i saw about them but then i remember like with like 35 seconds left in the first quarter they looked like they were going to snap the ball then they didn't and i was like all right you know like you're just kind of you know i wondered this was like we're taking the air out of the ball or whatever that was my first instinct and then as i watched more of the second quarter and watch this game kind of go on. I was like, you know, if these teams were in different uniforms, I would not think that is Clemson and that is Duke. I'm not saying right. Duke looked more talented, but there did not look like a big athlete gap at all. And, you know, what's interesting, big picture wise, and the game by score turned out to be a blowout. And it was um, in the other direction that, that almost everybody else would have expected. But and and we've talked about this for a while on the podcast uh, about Dabo Sweeney and his complete hesitance. I think his backup quarterback is about the only transfer of note on the, you know, on the two deep and that he's one of the few coaches if and really the only one who has eschewed the the transfer portal to the, I don't think that's the only reason why this program has, there's a bunch of reasons why I feel like they backslid, but that's one where, that's the um, the mulligan, right, where almost everybody else is like, yeah, these guys we missed on or this kid, you know, whatever. And they're not using he has not used that as a as a, you know, a repl- you know, a way to just to perk up where you where you missed. And it shows because honestly, they're not great at the re- especially in the receiver room where they used to be. And I thought. A few years back, when this was kind of right in the Trevor Lawrence era, they started to go more nationally recruiting, and they got some recruits out of places that were coveted. And I'm not saying none of those guys worked out, but it's interesting because sometimes when schools go national, as opposed to what they had success on, because now they can get into more homes and maybe they're cherry picking a little more, um, 
if for whatever reason, it seems to backfire. And in this case, it, uh, one of those things seems to have backfired. Yeah, I think, first of all, when you said that it didn't seem like there was much difference in talent, one thing that was for sure noticeable is Duke was more physical. They they were throughout the game. And yeah, Clemson coughed it up. You know, you could say it would be a different game if they don't cough it up near the goal line. But, you know, I mean, it's a, it's an absolutely crazy, you know, you don't, you don't usually see a box score where one team in the entire second half, Clemson never scored and never punted. It was either fumbles interception turnover on downs but i it doesn't change my opinion that duke was a more physical team the transfer portal thing is something i've been harping on for for two years you could kind of see it coming he he's very stubborn he's very principled and he's refusing to adapt and i'm not saying you need to do a dion thing i mean georgia doesn't go get lots and lots of transfers but if they think they have a hole they do and you know kirby smart did that at receiver this year so Dabo is just basically saying we're such great evaluators and such great developers. We don't need any help. We're going to ride the guys we have. And that's just such an unrealistic expectation. I mean, they, in the national title years, they definitely hit at an extremely high rate uh, and, and, you know, credit to them, but there's been a drop off and, you know, you look at Florida state the other night, so many key transfers, Keon Coleman coming to mind. If Clemson wanted to go get some transfers to upgrade their receiver room, they would get them. They're Clemson. Guys would want to go play there. It's like an NFL team that is like, you know what? No free agents for us. We're just going to build guys entirely through the draft. And meanwhile, all your competitors, that's the problem. All your competitors are using this and you're not. Um, you know, I think when people talk about you know, the Clemson offense and is it outdated and whatnot? I mean, I think it's pretty telling that Garrett Riley had so much success at TCU last year. I don't think he forgot how to call plays. Just don't think he has the same weapons. And that may sound crazy to say, given some of the guys that have come through Clemson, but did you see a Quentin Johnson or a Kendra Miller or Darius Davis? You can only do so much. And so I, I noticed that in the second half, once they realized like their receivers aren't getting open, they almost became, they almost tried to become like, um, I don't know, Rich Rod, West Virginia, where we're just gonna, we're just gonna run zone read and either Cade's going to pull it or he's going to hand off. And he does have two decent running backs, right? Shipley and, and, and Mufa, but two one dimensional. So, you know, I think first of all, all credit to Mike Elko and Duke. Congrats to you on picking it. I didn't know coming into the season, if Duke would, pick up where they left off or, or that would turn out to be a bit fluky. I mean, he's got, he's built himself a program there. And now Clemson, I don't think they're going to like turn around and go four and eight by any means, you know, they're in that conference. They're still one of the most talented teams. They're just not what they used to be. And, and I don't think they will. I think it's like they had this great run for six years where all the stars aligned and they had some incredible players come through there. I don't, I don't see them getting back to that. It looks like Florida State, if anything, is shaping up to be that team in the ACC. I think there's a couple of questions here. Now, the one thing that I did notice during the game, and I don't want to say, oh, this wasn't anything on the coaches, but there was a lot of breakdowns with players where guys coughed up the ball or, you know, one of the, the interceptions Klubnik threw, I think it hit uh, the receiver right in the hands and just went to, you know, a Duke player picked it off. I mean, sometimes 
this is an oversimplification as I, as I think it and say it, like what I saw from Florida against Utah was a team that did, was really sloppy in its preparation and did not look like they were ready to play. Clemson to me, wasn't quite, wasn't to that degree. I, I felt like it was more, a lot of the players just didn't make plays, you know, at times. Um, and that's, you know, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to give up on them and say, like you just said, I, I mean, I still think they're probably a top 25 team. I wouldn't put, have voted in them. And, the, you know, I saw that, um, you know, there's a couple of things in the AP top 25 and I'm like, man, LSU gets beat by three touchdowns, but you know, almost gets outscored 31 to nothing in the second half. And they're like 15th in the country. And I saw Clemson still in the top 25 and I was like, you got to watch the games. Yeah. I'm not saying they don't they won't belong there at some point, but what are we ranking that off of? Any that has nothing to do with anything that happened this year. For the people who say they shouldn't have rankings until, you know, when you know, maybe Halloween or even October 1st, this is a good evidence of it. The fact that they could get blown out by Duke and still people vote them in the top 25. Yeah, I think sometimes. I mean, it sometimes we're just too. Um, we have these perceptions of the teams that were built up over eight months, but we're really just guessing. And people don't want to necessarily give up on that entirely after first week. No, Clemson should absolutely not be ranked. Um, I'm looking right behind them is Iowa and then UCLA. UCLA would have been my uh, tw- number twenty-five. Or put it this way: Why is TCU out of the poll entirely, but not Clemson? Um. One other thing I would just note is, you know, DJU took so much flack for Clemson's offense the last two years. He eventually lost his job. And I think that's also pretty telling that he goes out and has a great first game for Oregon State. And then you turn around the next day and watch Clemson and it's more of the same, if not worse, frankly. So. And he was very outspoken in what he thought the issues were offensively there. I mean, again, a, a couple of years ago, Grace Rayner and I did a story on how the Clemson offense had got stale. And I just think that this didn't happen overnight. It's not going to get fixed immediately. You know, I think Garrett, you know, I agree with what you said. I mean, you know, TC was operating in a, in a, in a different way last year. Um, I think a bunch of stuff came together. Yeah. Uh, if you'd asked me, do I think Kendra Miller is much better than Will? Sh- their running backs are much better than Clemson's. I don't think I would agree with that, but I. Uh, no, it's more the receivers. Yeah. I just think that they have, they had some playmakers and I don't, I mean, I don't think Clemson had, and I don't have the stat in front of me. I don't think Clemson had a, a pass play for more than 21 yards or 20 yards. Um into all of Monday night, which is so unclemson like it just, Hey, maybe it'll, it's got to get a lot better. But the the thing I was going to pivot back to is something we've talked about before. And now it's become glaring because a lot of people are talking about it in wake of them getting blown out on national TV. Do you think Dabo Sweeney? I mean, look, lots of coaches are stubborn. He's not the first. Do you think Dabo Sweeney will look at it and go, all right, I, I got it. Cause it wasn't an easy decision to fire his guy as offensive coordinator and, and go get Garrett Riley. Now, I mean, I think it's like you're getting paid a lot of money. Um, now, if he turns around and goes and they beat Florida State this month, I think people will go, okay, maybe we 
you know, we overreacted. But if they lose yeah. to Florida State and they start and they go, let's say they go nine and three, um, not a terrible year, but certainly a drop off. At that point, do you think Dabo Sweeney looks at it and goes, all right, I got to get in the portal. I got to do what everybody else is doing. You would think so, but who knows? Um, you know, kind of like what he's never been ever since he got the thing rolling. He's never been under any pressure there. Um, I think of, you know, how things turned for less miles at LSU and everybody was like, this guy's a dinosaur. And, and every year he'd be like, no, we're going to do it differently this year. And they wouldn't do it any differently. Right. And eventually he got fired. I don't think Dabo is in anywhere near that kind of pressure cooker at Clemson. So it's basically if they go nine and three, is he going to say, well, we, we had a disappointing season, but at least we did it the way we believe in and the way we do things here at Clemson. Or is he going to say, okay, yeah, we, we gotta, we gotta do this because we gotta get back to trying to be on the same level as Alabama and whatnot. I don't know. I have a question for you, and this is going to warm your heart as I say it because it's the topic you love most. The timing of this is interesting because Florida State, obviously super vocal, leading into the ACC vote that they and Clemson, North Carolina, voted against to bring Stanford and Cal and SMU in. If Clemson football is trending down. And all this is stuff, you know, because I, I mean, what do you think that does for Clemson as a brand going forward? If people think they are not going to be the same and not no longer going to be a, a national title and even a playoff contender. Well, you know, the thing about Clemson is there, there's even a difference between those two programs. Florida State's been viewed as a national power for 30 years, 40 years, almost 40 years at this point. Won a national title less than 10 years ago. Bobby Bowden won won a few. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Like they, you know, Clemson, Clemson, and you know, I think one of the great things about the Dabo Clemson story was it's so rare these days for for somebody who's not uh, a blue traditional blue blood to rise up and be the top program in the sport. But it also will make you think, like, well, was that fleeting? Was that just this one moment in time? You know, if a new coach came in tomorrow, would he have any better luck turning club like there's not what am i trying to say here it's not like a, a birthright really that clemson's always going to be a national power most of my career clemson was you know going eight and four and and you know middle of the pack acc so yeah it would definitely hurt their standing if things trend downward but again i don't want to i don't think i'm overreacting and saying they're not this program as it's shaped up right now is not going to be a national title contender but i would not be surprised if they turn around and go 10 and two, maybe they get blown out by Florida state and then win the rest of them. Um, let's wait and see if it's a total uh, disaster, but um, to your question, is he going to adapt? We'll see. I mean, it seems crazy to me that right now he's basically like purposely playing with a hand tied behind his back. And by the way, I don't think Duke beat Clemson because Duke gets all the transfers by any means. It's not that it's that, Clemson of four or five years ago would have never lost a game like that. Just like Alabama never loses games like that. But the Clemson of now where you don't have like this decided talent advantage um, is going to be more vulnerable. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Speaking of Alabama, the big game this coming week, obviously, Texas heading to Alabama. I saw a promo for it during the Duke-Clemson game, and I had to do a little bit of a double take. Texas is ranked 11th in the country. This is number three versus number 11. I continue to think, I continue to be, you know, I want to see Texas prove it. Uh, I don't think they're, I don't think of them as a top 11 program yet. But if they go into Tuscaloosa and beat Alabama, I will. Uh, last year, with our, we were both there. We saw with our own eyes. That game went right down to the last second. But because the rest of the season wasn't that great for Texas, I don't know. I've, I've, I've had, it seems like everybody else is looking at not every, most other people have has seen enough of Texas and know who the players are coming back to say, this is a top 11 team in the country. And I just like, what am I missing here? What do you, what do you think? I'm skeptical. And again, I would, I was with you at, you know, we were both at that game last year. Honestly, Texas should have won that game. I'd hate to be the one who was like, yeah, they got some really bad calls against them. They got some really bad calls that went against them. And still, uh, Alabama was lucky to get out of there with a win. And that's, you know, basically with two quarterbacks who were banged up. Ewers lasted a quarter and had to leave the game. And Hudson Card was hobbled. Um, And But then, like you said, they did not look great at all. I mean, we saw a lot of inconsistency and inaccuracy from Quinn Ewers later in the year. I think this is a great window into where where the Longhorns are right now. 
I mean, their offensive line's in better shape, probably talent-wise, than it's been in a long time. Yeah, I mean, in a long time since you know, maybe since Alabama and Marcel Darius, you know, kind of kind of changed that national title game right then, because I feel like right after that, Texas's offensive line just started to become really suspect, and it just didn't have the personnel. Now they have some young guys who've played some played a lot now. I think it's upgraded. We know the receiver receiving room is talented. I want to see A.D. Mitchell if he has, you know, he was number two on our portal list. Um, the buzz out of him, out of Austin has been big on him. Go, go eat. You know, you know this other team because you played at a, you know, in a high level program before. Go have a big day. I'm not saying go do what, you know, what Travis Hunter just did on a big stage, but like go dominate, go have a, go have a uh, coming out party. I mean, on the other side, like Jalen Milrow was really impressive, but it wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't a big time team he played up against. So I think there's still, you know, there's still the jury is out right now to me a little on Alabama because they're coming off a bad year. Both coordinators are new and the bad. Did you say they come off a bad year? They went, they went 11, 11 and two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that game went down to the wire last year with Bryce Young as Alabama's quarterback. Um, I do think this is a, uh, you know, J- Jalen Monroe, did look good against Middle, was Middle Tennessee. Like, this is his first really, you know, he did start against A&M last year, but this is, you know, clearly his biggest moment yet. And, you know, to Texas's credit, uh, they improved by a lot on defense last year. They had a top 20 defense by the end of the year. And this will be an interesting, you know, Sark has really emphasized D line and recruiting. Um, they've got some good pass rushers now. If you, you know, we're saying, Oh, you got to go in and make a statement. They don't have to go in and make a statement by scoring 45 points. If the statement is their defense comes out and dominates and um, you know, renders that Alabama, you know, all the questions we have out about Alabama's offense come to fruition. I thought of this. I was surprised how small the spread is given this game is in is in Tuscaloosa. I get what the rankings are. I expected it to be at least like double digits, at least 10 and a half, 12. And the spread's only seven. Yeah. Yet the game's not in Austin. That surprised me a little bit. Well, there's definitely that shows you the skepticism toward Alabama because Vegas has always been you know, you, you remember these games where they would play like um, like some some SEC team that's ranked in the top 10 and yet they'd be favored by 20 points. Clearly, they don't have that kind of confidence in this Alabama team yet. Um, no, I think it's going to be great. It's a little preview of uh, what it's going to be like when Texas is in the SEC. It's actually a, a when I was you know figuring out what games to, to do the picks this week, I was like, this is a pretty good lineup. Like, that's definitely the marquee game. But, you know, I'm interested in Oregon, Texas Tech. I'm interested in Texas A&M, Miami. I'm interested in sneaky, sneaky under the radar one. You know, off the top of your head, do you know what the second game is of the other only other game between two ranked teams? Uh, off the top of my head? Yeah. No. Ole Miss Tulane. That's oh, yeah. the only other one. And then Wisconsin at Washington State primetime is is you know going to be really interesting because we're going to get our first real glimpse of the new Wisconsin offense, and I think Wazoo's an underrated team. So 
it should be a good day of college football watching. Um, time to open the mailbag. Go to the mailbag. I do want to ask you this. Uh, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. This is really, this is our only road game for a while. Miami looked pretty good, albeit against a Mac team. Do you think Texas A&M goes in there and smashes Miami? I don't know about smashes, but they should win. If they don't win, that's not a good sign for Jimbo because they're going to play much tougher games over the course of the season than this one. And I could be wrong. Maybe Miami is much, much improved. But based on what we saw last year, um, they're not there. They're not that kind of program yet. So I don't I don't think they have to crush them. But, uh, you know, A&M should this is a game A&M should win. It's four and a half. Four and a half. Yeah. I mean, they could win by one. I just think you got to win this game. If you if you want to if this is this if this Texas A&M team is going to you know, rise up and surprise people and maybe even contend in the SEC. You got to win this game. And, you know, it's a great, it's going to be a great opportunity to see the Bobby Petrino effect. Uh, people noticed, I didn't watch any other, who did they play? New Mexico? Um, that at, at his halftime interview, he, Jimbo just kind of uh, nonchalantly said, Bobby's calling a great game. So that tells us he is the play caller. They've been, he never would have, Never admitted to it in the offseason. So does, uh, does does Bobby get to call a great game when it's not New Mexico and they're not, you know, it's it's not gonna be a runaway game. I'm not saying this is that weekend, but you know are you saying he won't let him call it or he won't say that he's calling he may it? Take it back. Who knows? Does he want the credit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's just want I don't know if it's so much want the credit. I think it's just like when the pressure's on, can you just let somebody else drive the car? You know, again, and and maybe he will, but like, you know, if they stumble one of these games, I don't think they'll lose at Miami. I wouldn't shock me if they lost against like an Auburn, but they have, you know, the first big game for them is early October. They host Alabama and then they got at Tennessee. Um, you know, it's like if they stumble like one game without a really good, you know, with a shaky offensive performance, is he just have second thoughts or third thoughts? I don't know. Um, we'll see, but like you said, lots and lots of good games. Let's get to the mailbag as always. Send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. Our first question is from our friend in Columbia, South Carolina, Jason Gorluski, Bruce and Stewart. Great podcast as always. Thank you, Jason. Uh, what was Billy Napier known for when he was the coach at Louisiana? Was he viewed as an X and O's guy, a monster recruiter, big time offense, big defense. How was he viewed within the industry during his time at Louisiana? And did his Louisiana teams make the same type of mistakes that UF made out in Utah? I'm not going to claim that I watched enough Louisiana games to know if that they were a team that made a lot of mistakes or not. But, you know, I think he was known for was a very, um, a very good offense, a very, um, he had, uh, uh, I mean, they had a great rushing attack uh, during that time. It kind of had the same core of players for a couple of years in a row or several years in a row. And, you know, 11 and three, 10 and one, 12 and one. I think we both agree the Sun Belt is a, it's a tough, tough group of five conference. So there was nothing about his tenure to indicate that he would have the kind of struggles he's had so far in Florida. Yeah. The, I remember um, one of the coaches I'm pretty close to worked one of his clinics and, or came in to work one of his clinics and speak at it and t- told me early on how impressed he was by the staff that, 
uh, Napier had put together. And I thought he did do a really good job with that. I think they were very good evaluators of talent and it's not a stretch to, 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 to understand that because Louisiana is one of the schools that got picked apart in the, in the transfer portal by bigger schools. So I, I totally see that. I think because they were so good at evaluating talent, um, I think they were very good on message. What's been tricky is he's had a lot of staff turnover from year one to year two, uh, you know, a couple of guys who were, I thought are sharp young uh, assistants moved on to the NFL. I'm not saying the guys that replaced them aren't good, but I just think that I was surprised that how, uh, how, I don't know, just like, out of sync they were it just looked like it looked like something you would have expected from a first scrimmage not from a game on the road against a really buttoned up utah team and the thing i came back to a little bit was maybe they were just trying to look like a team that was trying to do too much and i think sometimes and this is me totally i don't say talking out of my butt but i think sometimes when when coaches do that i feel like they don't they feel like they don't have enough talent to to kind of just trust your talent and everything. And I would imagine they will try to simplify things, but that uh, I'm not, I'm not giving up on Billy Napier as I like, I thought it was a good hire. It's looking like a shaky hire right now, but um, you know, I still think he has a, you know, he has a chance. It's still really early in his tenure. It's, it's basically a season and one game in. So, but they, they definitely have to tighten some stuff up and I would imagine they will have to, to, clean some stuff up and maybe uh, pare down some stuff. You know, a commenter in my mailbag today uh, in defending Billy Napier brought something up that I thought was interesting. Why, why is everybody so, you know, kind of out on him already one game into a second season? What's the difference between that and uh, Mike Norvell at Florida state who started his second season? Owen four lost to Jacksonville state. I don't remember. There might have been some Florida State fans who wanted him gone, but also had some hot button issues. And granted, it was in the pandemic or kind of, and there was a lot of stuff bubbling over. I just remembered like the Marvin Wilson situation got delicate. There was a few things where it was like, "Ooh, this could, this could blow up. This could implode." Right, and and but you look at what he's done since then. And it's kind of an argument for, hey, give the guy a chance, like slow down. Not his first job. Like Mike Norvell was was very good at Memphis. Billy Napier was very good at Louisiana. I think there's a little difference between the guy who's never been a head coach goes in there and starts, you know, st- you know, stumbling over the over the coffee table every morning. You're like, okay, what's going on here? Like this is a guy who actually has done it before. He didn't do it in you know, an SEC school, but I, I mean, he, it's not like he's a first time head coach. I think the the where the situation it's a it's a good point. Like if everybody would just chill and give Billy Napier, you know, three years, four years, would he end up? Would Florida end up where Florida State is? But I think what's two things, three things. Mike Norvell took over after they'd fired Willie Taggart after two years. I think everybody realized like we're not going to turn around and do that again. You know, they had to spend some absurd amount of money to buy out Willie Taggart after two years. His first Mike Norvell's first season ends up being the COVID season where I think a lot of people got a, got a pass for that. And then, you know, Mike Norvell, his big, um, you know, where they've really taken a jump has been since immediate eligibility. So he's been the master of the transfer portal, uh, but that wasn't available at first. It is now. And so I think 
our expectation of how quickly a coach can turn a program around has probably changed. When you see what Lincoln Riley does, when at least so far seeing what Dion's done, that that Florida should be better than this in year two. Maybe that's unrealistic. Maybe that's unfair. I don't think Florida was as bad when he took over as Florida State was. I could be, you know, maybe I'm underestimating what Dan Mullen did, but like, I mean, did, did Florida was like, let's see, Dan Mullen's second to last season, didn't they go to a New Year's Six Bowl? So I don't think the perception that Florida was as broken when he took over as Florida State was when Mike Norvell took over for Willie Taggart. Our next question is from Jericho's all down the, not down the street, but pretty close to me in Menlo Park. It's been 26 years since Charles Woodson won the Heisman as a dual threat, yet primarily defensive player, a completely different era for the sport. In the time-honored spirit of early season Heisman speculation, what kind of statistical profile do you think Travis Hunter would need to accumulate on the offensive and defensive side of the balls? And what record do you think Colorado would need to post this year for Hunter to be a realistic candidate to win the award? I think that's a really good question. It is. To, to win the award is different than to be a realistic candidate. I think if they have a winning record and go to a bowl game, I th- you know, look, and we'll see, Shador is going to be a competitor with him as it comes to like the publicity because he was awesome in the opener as well. But I, I think if they're even seven and five and he, he doesn't need to have 11 catches and go over 100 yards every game, I honestly think it's unrealistic for anyone to expect that he's going to be able to play a hundred. I mean, I saw somebody had said he had played 145 snaps. I don't know what the number actually is. Cause we've seen it written in a bunch of different 129 was the official number. Then we saw 134. I don't know. Um, but w- even if he plays 110 snaps to do that every week, um, it's uh, almost unfathomable. I remember I did this story on Chris Gamble, who was a first round pick on a great team. They won the national title at Ohio state. Chris Gamble played 130 snaps uh, in an overtime game. That was not in 98-degree heat, by the way. Um, and Chris Gamble was the primary return guy. He was a really good cornerback, and he was Ohio State's second-leading receiver. Now, Jim Trestle's team did not throw the ball the way Sean Lewis and Dion are throwing it. But, again, he was on a great team, was not a was not a Heisman guy. You know, there was Maurice Claret there. You know, it was different. I think... If he has 50, 60 catches and is a lockdown cornerback and makes the plays like he did, he will absolutely be a candidate. But what I think is going to hurt him long term, even if he has this spectacular season, is the region he's coming out of. The Pac-12 is loaded with Heisman guys, not just the guy who just won it and who's still spectacular, Caleb Williams. Michael Penix Jr. is putting going to put up crazy numbers. Bo Nick is going to put up crazy numbers. Then you got like five other guys, you know, whether it's, you know, the I don't want to say the fringe kind of guys, but but you have other guys in that league who are going to get some attention. Um, that region, there's only so many, you know, so many people who are going to come out of there. I just think it, it'd be it would almost be be better if they were in the Big Twelve right now because there wouldn't be all of the you know, you wouldn't get kind of, I mean, the hype is going to be there as long as Dion keeps winning, but I just think it's, you know, I don't know. Can he be a top 10 guy? Yes. Can he win it? Ooh, that's going to be hard to sustain. Well, I'm going to do pro and con here. I mean, what you just said about all the Pac-12 Heisman contenders, and that could actually work in his favor if he's the cornerback who 
while Caleb helps, helps hold down Caleb Williams or Bo Nix, you know, like, because otherwise it's very hard for, you know, a cornerback to get attention in college football. I do think Heisman voters gravitate towards something new. Um, he's, he's new, he's novel, he's unique. I just think that at the end of the day, the problem you just said, you said earlier, I just think Colorado needs to go only go seven and five. I don't know about that. The, the focus is so much on the playoff race down the stretch that as much as we're talking about Dion and Colorado right now, there's going to be a point in a late October, November, where that's not going to be the story anymore. Um, it's going to be who's, who's going to make the playoff. I, I don't know what the magic number wins is for Colorado, unless we actually think they're going to go to the playoff or be on, have a chance to go to the playoff. But there will be a point where it's just the focus will be off of them and on the top seven, eight teams that are, you know, have a chance to make the playoff. So, but I think on all, you know, all these early se- if he play, keeps playing like he did the other day, he'll be on all these early season lists. That's for sure. Just looking back, because obviously we know who won it last year. Um, and in line with what you said, I mean, Max Duggan came in second, right? And then, mm-hmm. so it, it typically is that way where you get, um, you know, it gets whittled down a little bit. Uh, it gets tied very closely to the playoff race. It really does. Like, it's really hard to win the Heisman now, frankly, get to New York if you're not on one of those teams, just because that's where all the attention is. All right, let's do this next question from Ratha in Los Angeles. Bruce and Stu, I pay a ridiculous amount for cable each month so I can watch live sports. I can't describe the fury I felt when ESPN pulled my, from was pulled from my Spectrum cable a couple of months into the U couple of minutes into the Utah Florida game last night and right before the 70 yard TD Utah scored. Ouch. Which leads me to this question. Will the Apple TV deal that the Pac-12 was offered look like a great deal three or four years from now? Will we want all of our precious live sports controlled by a streamer and the distributor so these conflicts don't get in the way of our very precious few weeks of college football? That is a great question because this ESPN spectrum thing has become a real hot button topic. It's not the first time that there's been a standoff like this, but usually they get resolved pretty quickly. And it just seems, it feels different because spectrums, you know, made some comments to the, of the effect of like, they're, they're, they're ready to dig in. Like they themselves think the cable model is broken. They make most of their money off um, selling internet service. And so it's like they're kind of standing up and making a statement. But, you know, I put out a tweet that got a lot of responses. What I don't understand about this is if you're a sports fan and you want to watch ESPN, there are so many ways to like, what's 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 the reason for sticking with your cable company? You can sign up for YouTube TV in like 30 seconds or Sling or, you know, any number of these streaming services. Now, I got some responses from people who, frankly, had the same concerns I did before I made the switch a couple of years ago about the, the delay, the lag, um, harder to switch between channels, all those things. But I got to tell you, I'm in year two of YouTube TV and I, I cannot even imagine going back. And so unless you're locked down by some contract, I don't know why you wouldn't switch. Now, to his point about, you know, was that Apple TV deal going to look a lot better? Perhaps, but uh, let's not be naive and think that this kind of showdown won't happen you know, the next time ESPN's uh, rights come up with a stream, right? Like 
to think this is going to be only ever happen with cable. I don't know. Um, but I do think this is a pretty, like to me, this is a pretty good lesson in why cable is dying and why more people are switching away from cable. You don't want to deal with this crap. Like your cable goes out, you call the cable company. It takes them a week to come. Um, you never deal with any of that stuff with a streaming service. You pull out your credit card, you give them the credit card number, you have it. And by the way, if you want to get rid of it a month later, you're not locked into some contract. You just get rid of it. So um, I, I wonder if this will be a moment where people look back and be like, oh, why why did we stick with this for so long? The thing I like about YouTube TV having switched a year ago for out of more frustration with the cable company um, was this. I, I'm on the road a bunch and I can fire up YouTube, YouTube TV on my phone and I can watch games in the airport. I can watch games um, pretty much anywhere. The part that I don't like is the back button. They don't have a solution for that. You nope. figure out a way, but you, you know, it's like a little bit of a tedious process. The other thing is, and I don't know, like I'm not a baseball fan, much, hardly at all anymore. I don't, I don't think you are either. Like there's a lot of, um baseball and i think there's you know i get i am a big nba fan so i will i will watch league pass and i'll pay for it but i think if you're one of the if you're sometimes fans of those other sports especially in their market i think youtube tv may not be a viable as as great a solution for that i got a lot of people saying hey, my my favorite team plays on valley sports and youtube tv doesn't have that yeah. what don't you you're in la that's spectrum right like can you watch the Dodgers without it? No, I can't get it from YouTube TV. I'm sorry, like Joe Davis is is my guy, but I, yeah. I unless he's doing a, a big Fox game, I don't get to hear him. So that's obviously, you know, that's a big stumbling block. But I will say that those um, regional RSNs, that's that's going to, those aren't going to be around much longer. Um, Bally's is bankrupt. Like that, that model will go away pretty quickly. In fact, so kind of a small scale version of that. But this weekend is the first ever ACC game on the CW Cincinnati pit. And the reason it's on the CW is they, they have this like small package of games that were airing on valleys on regional networks. And they saw what was happening and they got them off of that and put them on a channel that everybody can get. So it's an interesting time. I don't think, you know, there, the problem is there's not one solution out there. Uh, Chris Vanini did a really good, before the season, a guide to like each streaming service and which channels they get and which ones they don't. And there wasn't a single one that you could get every single conference network. You know, if you want Pac-12 network, you got to go to Sling, but they don't have this thing and whatnot. So it's a frustrating time to be a sports fan. It really is. And when this something like this happens with where they pulled ESPN with almost no notice on the first weekend of the college football season is is got to be pretty infuriating. All right. Um, we look forward to a great week too. Um, again, this second episode of the week is going to be our heavy mailbag ones. Send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next time. How did we get away with the things we used to do?